Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Arturo Alvarez Boyaya, is Professor of Neurological Surgery at UCSF. His laboratory uh, studies the mechanisms of adult neurogenesis and neuronal replacement. Welcome, Arturo. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your older papers to set the context, um, and that paper is entitled Interneurons from Embryonic Development to Cell-Based Therapy. Uh, in which you say alterations in neural excitation and inhibition cause a number of neurologic and psychiatric disorders. In the cerebral cortex, excitation and inhibition are, inhibition are mediated by two cell types born in distinct areas of the embryo, excitatory projection neurons, which are generated in the developing cortex, and inhibitory interneurons, which are produced outside the cortex in the ventral forebrain. Um, so I don't know a lot about this, Arturo. You know, uh, from a design perspective, why why do you think that uh, why do you think nature ended up with this type of a design that you have two distinct types of uh, things working together to get to the end outcome? Well, that's a fantastic question, and that's the question that actually had led us into many of these lines of research. Yeah. So neurons, these are the nerve cells that take impulses from one cell to another and modify these impulses to, uh, you know, create information and, and, and process information in the brain, uh, frequently are born uh, in very, very far places from where they end up working. So they require these very extensive migrations from the place where they're born to where they actually become integrated and be part of the circuits. And this is a, a, a common practice, not only in the brain, but also in the peripheral nervous system. Yeah. And the reason most likely for these is that the stem cells that give rise to these unique neuronal cell types become specialized, um, what we call in biology specified for the production of these cells based on their location during development. So location is incredibly important where you are as a cell during development is very important to determine what are you going to do uh, and what the functions of the cells that are going to be derived from you uh, are going to be. So this is, if the cells this become, is only for, yeah. It's only for interneurons, right? So uh, if I understand this correctly, Arturo, so uh, if you take the entire neuron community in the brain, the human brain, about 100 billion neurons, um, how what percentage of that is what, what you would call interneurons? So in the cerebral cortex, it varies from part of the, in different parts of the brain. In the cerebral cortex, it's about 20 to 30% of the cells are local inhibitory. They use the neurotransmitter GABA. They're local inhibitory interneurons. Okay. The name interneuron is, it refers to cells that project locally. The projection neurons are usually cells with long cables that connect and talk to other parts of the brain at distant locations. 
But there are other parts of the brain that the, the ratio is reversed. For example, in the olfactory bulb, there is many more interneurons, local interneurons, than projection neurons. Yeah. And so, so the migration that you talked about, is that specific to interneurons or is that for all neurons? Well, I think it's true for all neurons. Excitatory neurons also are born far away from their final location, but they migrate radially out from the epithelial layer that gives rise to them. What is unique about these interneurons is that their journey actually takes them tangentially to that orientation and they migrate from ventral regions of the developing brain to get to these cortical areas. So frequently the migration of interneurons is much longer and much more complicated than that of, 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 um, of the excitatory cells in the cortex. But yeah. this, this theme of migration happens throughout the nervous system and also happens in the peripheral nervous system. Yeah. So do I understand this correctly that, so when you get a stimulus, stimulus into the brain, uh, you get excitatory uh, actions at the neuron level and the interneurons is sort of uh, mediating that, sort of coordinating that to get to, the, uh, get to the right outcomes? Yes, more and more people are considering the local circuit interneurons the master regulators of many circuits. I mean, in a very, very simplistic way, you could think of them as maintaining the level of excitation and the control and so that they just won't run crazy with excitation. But they have properties that go much beyond that because they have membrane properties that actually make them process information and control the way excitatory cells are going to have their output. So they also are unique in that they control the excitatory cells in very specific locations within their cell bodies. They are specialized interneurons that actually tag the cell body of the excitatory cells. There's others that tag the initial segment of the axon, that's the initial wire coming out from the excitatory cells. There are other interneurons that tag the peripheral parts. And among these different tagging of different, different locations, there must be very, very important secrets of how this uh, cerebral cortex works. <laughs> And the specialization that you talked about, um, clearly different parts of the brain specializes in different things. Uh, there are different requirements. And so, so you mentioned um, where they are born uh, is quite important. And then they migrate from that position to an, a, a designated area of specialization. Yes, and that's one of the processes that has fascinated many biologists. I mean, how they know how to migrate, uh, how they actually translocate the actual movement, how do they walk through the brain. You think of the brain of a three-dimensional matrix that's very complex. So yeah. how do they guide themselves to get to the right places is just a, an amazing process that we still do not fully understand. Yeah. Is it um, is that process driven chemically or uh, electromagnetically? I don't, we don't really know. Maybe a combination. Well, there has been proposition for both. The but yeah. I think more and more we have learned of many guidance molecules. Sometimes these guidance molecules are the same guidance molecules that that guide axons because those are the other axons are the wires. They also have to move to the right targets. So. Yeah. There are two processes of guiding in the brain, one guiding the cell to the right location, but once the cell is in that location, it has to grow a long wire that targets the right cells to make the right circuits. And sometimes the molecules that guide these processes are similar. They're both chemotactic molecules that attract the, the growing axon or the moving cell to the right place. And yeah. there are other chemorepulsive signals that tell the cells, don't go into this area, you do not belong here and make these cells go in the opposite direction. So, so when you look at other biological systems, simple systems uh, like the mice brain or, or something like that, uh, what do we know uh, from an evolutionary perspective why, uh, why the brain has this type of a design? Do we have some insights why we reached this design? Well, I think that's a very complex question, but we can speculate about it. And uh, one of the ideas, I mean, your question can be interpreted in two ways. Why do these cells are born in such specialized locations? Or why 
is that excitatory and inhibitory cells modularly come from different locations. So you can think about evolution uh, and people believe that interneurons have become much more diverse as the brain has become more complex and maybe associated to these diversities, increased functionality that adds to the cerebral cortex uh, features that it didn't have in, in, in simpler brains. So, so, so yeah. one way of thinking about it is that if you have modular places where these neurons are made, sort of factories, these are sites where you can start treating with these kind of interneurons are making new subclasses. And yeah. it's becoming, I think, evident that the human brain has many more of these subtypes of cells. And even Ramonica Hall, who actually started looking at these cells in great detail, thought of these local circuit neurons, as he used to call them, as much more diverse and complex in humans than in other species. Uh, uh, does that provide more flexibility in some sense? So is there some sort of an error correction mechanisms, for example, if I produce something and send it out, and if I don't get a feedback mechanism that it actually reached at the right location and, and, uh, and uh, let's say, docked, uh, appropriately, I can send another one. Is that is that flexibility one of the possibilities? Well, yes, I think there's several levels of error control during development, and they're actually one of the amazing questions is why there are more mistakes given that the processes are so complex and there's so many migrations. So one of the key control mechanisms is cell death, and interneurons suffer a period of cell death that is programmed. Uh, soon after they arrive to their location. And still the mechanism by which this is regulated is not totally understood, but one of the common ideas is that the cells that are not really required are eliminated by some form of feedback mechanism. One of the things that we have observed is that part of this uh, wave of cell death among these newly arrived cells is about 40% of them that get eliminated um, actually seems to be programmed in a way that if you transplant more cells, you would expect that then the fraction of cells that would die even be, be greater because there would be less room for the additional cells, but it doesn't happen that way. The proportion of cells that dies actually scales to the numbers of cells that you transplant. And this is one of the great questions that we have now. How does this work? What molecules might be regulate, re, regulating it? And we're actively working on this process of, of program cell death among local circuit interneurons. So, but there's other ways of control. I'm sure at the physiological level, once the cells become hooked up, there's a, a tweeting of that, those connections to get the circuit right. And uh, there are many other labs that are working on these questions of, you know, in more advanced stages of the development of these circuits, how do these cells exactly establish the right balance of synapses with other cells so that the circuits work appropriately. So, so, so when you say that the cell death scales to the quantity, um, so do I understand it correctly that the, the controlling mechanism is really the ratio, uh, the, the ratio of uh, neurons sent to that location to, um, to program death? Yes, that was a surprise because in other words, you would think that an area has the capacity, let's say for five neurons. So if you send 10 neurons, you would eliminate five of them and then you would have the right five cells that you require for that region. But then instead of sending 10 neurons, you send 20 neurons, then you would expect that 15 cells would die to leave the five cells that you really require for that area. But that doesn't happen like that. When you send 20 cells, what happens is that 10 of them die and then you have 10 cells. So you have more cells than normal. So that's a fascinating observation that goes again, common sense. And you know, when things don't make sense in science is when there's a, surprises and interesting discoveries. Yeah, and more generally, when we look at um, simpler systems, uh, do we see the ratio of interneurons to total, total neurons in the brain uh, to be different uh, compared to human brain? Human brain has a lot more. Yeah, the human brain has more diversity and has more of these local circuit interneurons in the cerebral cortex. And there's multiple sources for these cells the germinal zones, the, the, let's say the little factories where these cells are made in the developing brain, they're in the ventral part of the forebrain and they migrate 
into the surface of the brain to invade the brain. And there's two areas that produce these neurons. They're called ganglionic eminences. And these ganglionic eminences are diverse and probably diversity of interneurons comes from these different sites of origin of these cells. You can think of it as, as if you were building a computer and you needed certain components for that computer that have certain processing powers. And some are made in, in China, some are made in Japan, some are made in Thailand, some are made in South America, and they get imported to one location and are put together. So you're really importing specialized units that have that unique, those unique properties. Uh, so that's a little bit also getting at the question you were asking earlier, what might be the logic of how this is all assembled? So that might be a, a, a specialized little factories that are have evolved to make these very specific subtypes of interneurons that get all integrated into one circuit altogether. Mm. Yeah, yeah, obviously difficult to speculate, but it seems to me that the design has more expansion capacity <laughs> in some ways. So uh, perhaps evolution is thinking forward that you can, with that design, maybe create a, a more complex brain going forward because there is the capacity is not inherently limited, right? Yes, I don't know. Um, I, I have no idea. I mean, there must be a limit to these capacity of these circuits. I mean, and obviously different parts of the brain perform different tasks and those tasks yeah. might be um, uh, challenging the circuits in different ways. So I really don't know how to answer that question because I would be surprised that there's really no limit to this. Obviously you can keep adding neurons and that's a little bit of what has happened with the brains. The brain has gone bigger and probably has higher powers of analysis and capacity of memory and perception and reactions and all of these things that the brain does so wonderfully. Um, but uh, yeah. what are the limits of the circles and how many more of these elements can you add without, you know, losing, because at some point you also have the physical constraints of connectivity within the brain. So that's an interesting question that I, I really don't know how to answer. What I think, yeah. what I think and, is another I, limit, and it's very, and we have written a paper about this, and it might relate of to whether there's continual generation of new nerve cells in the adult brain of humans, yeah. is that the size might in a way constrain the ability to maintain this process going because of the migrations of cells from spe pre-specified locations. And the other constraint, Artura, I don't know much about it, but 20% uh, of the energy is consumed in the brain. So the other, other sort of overarching constraint might be energy. Uh, but then you could you could get uh, more and more efficient over time as well. Well, yeah, I mean, you also need a larger body, probably a larger heart. I, I, I don't know. Again, that's not the area that I work in. But yes, you're absolutely right that the brain is a huge consumer of energy, of overall load of energy in the organism. Yeah, I mean, cynically, the, you know, the brain gets to some level of intelligence and that's good enough to, uh, to eliminate, the, eliminate the species. You know, they do something stupid and that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, 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 I, so I want to go to another paper you have, um, Embryonic Origin of Postnatal Neural Stem Cells. Uh, you say adult neural stem progenitor cells within the walls of lateral ventricles generate different types of neurons for the olfactory bulb and the location of um, olfactory bulb cells determines the type of OB neurons they generate. So what, what's the implication of well, this? Well, this actually happened historically before the studies that we were, we were just discussing. My laboratory for, for many, many years has been very interested in how new neurons continue to be produced in a fully adult brain and what might, what might be the function of these process of neuronal replacement in a brain that's already been assembled. So um, we know that the brain has these uh, liquid-filled cavities called ventricles. And during development, the walls of these ventricles are the sites where these neurons are born. So also in adulthood, uh, many of the neurons, the majority of the neurons that are produced are also born in what's left of these walls of the ventricles. 
that now are largely covered by a very thin layer of ependymal cells. These actually are cells that have like hair-like extensions that move the cerebrospinal fluid inside these ventricles along from the head to the neck down to the uh, canal uh, in, in, the, uh, um, in the medulla um, and the spinal cord. So these, these walls in very specific locations harbor stem cells and these are primary progenitors for the generation of new neurons. And they, they continue right. into adulthood? These cells have stayed on into adult uh, stages of life in mice and other species. We, we think that there are very, very few left in humans, but there might be some left in humans in the walls of the ventricle. And one of the amazing things is that the cells that are born here, again, do not make cells for local use. They export these cells with after a very long migration, just like the migrations we were talking about, even longer because now the brain is fully grown into the tip of the brain called the a region called the olfactory bulb, where we process olfactory information. And there they continually replace all their neurons. And these cells also form local circuit interneurons. So they also form these cells that we were talking about, local GABAergic, local circuit interneurons that control circuit function within the olfactory bulb. So it's an amazing process. Why do these cells come from so far? And again, the, the answer is because that's where the factories specialize in the production of these specific cell types are. And then the other surprise was that it was not one factory, but there's multiple factories that have unique properties and make different subtypes of these nerve cells that go to the olfactory bulb. So this is sort of a replenishment mechanism over time? Well, at some point, people thought that this was a replenishing mechanism, or perhaps it was uh, a way in which the brain was constantly repairing itself. Yeah. We still do not exactly know what the function of these new neurons are, is, but the most prevalent idea is that this is a form of plasticity. And what plasticity what would mean in the brain, a form of making the circuits change and modify themselves so that the brain and this part of the brain, the olfactory bulb, is capable to discriminate different others and process olfactory information as it comes through the olfactory bulb. So that's a core idea why these cells might be getting replaced. So sort of a learning, learning mechanism. Um, so, so do we see them uh, continuing? Most of Homo sapien uh, evolution, we would not have lived more than 35, 40 years. Do we see post that sort of Well, as I said, this is a process that has been studied most uh, uh, commonly in rodents. And rodents, rodents have oh. a huge olfactory bulb relative to the size of their brain. Right. And for them, olfaction is super interesting. And if you say, well, an older mice still has some of these new neurons coming to the olfactory bulb, it goes down with age of the mouse. In humans, we have okay. seen that there okay. is some level of this process continued during the first year after birth, but it actually is already right. very diminished at one year of age. Now, you do find the rare young migrating cells in the adult brain, but they're very rare, nothing like what you see in mice, that is a massive process in mouse, in a young adult mouse, we estimate that it's about 10,000 new neurons that traverse this, this space between the ventricles and the olfactory bulb every day. And, and as you say, uh, for the mouse uh, olfactory system is, is very critical, uh, perhaps not as critical for humans, uh, but our visual systems are very critical for us. Do we see anything like this in, uh, in the visual system? Yeah, that's system? a very interesting question, and we don't. So the visual system and the yeah. areas that control vision, as far as we can tell, are made in development, and then they have the set set of neurons for life. And they work well with that set of neurons. So your next question might be, well, what's different between vision and olfaction that one of the areas require these neural replacement and the other doesn't? Yeah, um, I can see olfaction to be a more complex process, maybe new information coming in. Um, maybe, you know, you, 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 you have some new fruit or some type of new food that you found and uh, there is potentially more need to learn, whereas the visual system perhaps is more stable and stagnant. 
that there isn't a lot of scope for learning. I well, think. I think that the, the, I think you're right. And I think that's the speculation that we and others have made that the complexity of factory discrimination it goes far beyond what uh, mapping the world in two dimensions might represent for vision. Uh, however, there's a lot of learning and complex learning and associations also happen with visual stimuli. Um, that might not happen within the areas that process vision, might happen in other parts of the brain. But what is unique about olfaction, and you pointed on it, is that it might be very variable and very unpredictable. It changes with season, it changes with mate, I mean, it changes with, uh, you know, birth of, of young, uh, with predators, with prey. So there's a lot of variables that might affect the kind of others that you need to be very sensitive to. Uh, and be able to discriminate very small amounts of these others. So we speculated with a, with a neural network program years ago with a group at Rockefeller University that this might be the case. And actually a few years ago, a group in Japan uh, did the test and actually prevented neurogenesis from happening in mice. And what they found is that these mice were still good at discriminating others that were very dissimilar from each other. And there was no difference between mice with neurogenesis and mice without neurogenesis. But when you challenge the mice to discriminate others that were more similar between each other, then the animals without neurogenesis did a lot worse. Okay, so it's sort of a fine differentiation. Um, it's sort of, you know, you drink wine for a long time and then as you get better and better at it, you can really see <laughs> which wine yes. might be better. Yes. So, uh, again, I don't know how much of this really happens in humans. I mean, there's many other forms of plasticity yeah. that might enhance a behavior. And as I said, I think our right. olfactory world is very limited or uh, relative to other uh, sensory systems compared to what is the olfactory system for a mouse or for a dog. Yeah. Um, I want to look at another paper, which is sort of related um, from 2018. Human hippocampal neurogenesis drops sharply in children to undetectable levels in adults. And, and this is a general idea that um, most of the plasticity in human brain sort of disappears. Um, and it's very difficult to teach an old dog new tricks, so to speak, right? Well, I, uh, the, the, the process of adult neurogenesis, as we were talking just a minute ago in the olfactory bulb, also happens in the hippocampus and also has been largely studied in, in rodent models. And there's been very fundamental progress done in this area, um, uh, looking at what kind of factors affect the number of new neurons that integrate into the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a very, very, very important relay station for information coming from the cortex and especially from the entorhinal cortex. And it's thought like olfaction to process very complex stimuli and is key for making memories of those stimuli. So the process of neurogenesis has been extensively studied in this, uh, with this physiological importance of the hippocampus in this part of the brain called the dentate gyrus. So this has become... Uh, uh, a, a point of disagreement in science because there are groups, and this is our perspective, there's groups that think that it does continue very robustly in adult humans to the point, you know, that some people think that there might be 700 new neurons produced every day in a fully adult human. But really even that number is not that large for how large our hippocampi is and how extensive this part of the hippocampi is in humans. Now, um, we have began looking at the human hippocampi like six years ago, and together with groups in China and also in Spain, we began looking in a lot of detail to this area of the brain, and we were surprised that we could not find cells with the markers of new neurons there, and we found very, very little evidence of progenitor proliferation. So we went back to development, and we found them in development, and we found them also in children, and we found that actually the germinal zone that you see in mice and other species where the neurogenesis continues, we just don't see it in humans. And this has been very highly contested because there are other groups that uh, claim that there is uh, robust neurogenesis in adult humans. And this is one of these interesting aspects of science of trying to figure out what really happens. Yeah. There was some suggestion, uh, Arturo, I don't know, uh, the, the IQ 
of humans shows some up for upward trend um not significant but if you look at 200 300 years so very very short period of time there is an upward trend i don't know if that is true um if if something like that is true i wondered um you know the the human brain in some sense challenged to become more plastic in the modern context right uh, things are changing a lot faster um jobs are changing requirements are changing so i mean it i know that it's a very very short period of time i wondered if there is any data that shows there is some increased plasticity because of the increased plasticity in modern human brain i don't know uh, i mean this is sounds very interesting what you're saying my impression is that historically i mean i don't i don't think a hundred years or in terms of evolution could make much of a difference in terms of of, of brain changes now when we talk about plasticity yeah. is a very very loose term because we usually refer to it as as the ability of circuits to modify its in uh, its processing ability and um mm. this could happen in many ways one of way, one of which is the introduction of new neurons so i i would be very surprised yeah. if process of plasticity associated to neuronal replacement have changed in such a short span of time now as i said before there's actually things that induce in mice Uh, uh neurogenesis increased neurogenesis for example running or a more complex yeah. environment so there could be some basis for what you're saying in terms of the hippocampi but as i said at least in my lab we don't see much evidence that this is a very robust process after adolescence right right and so 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 you have some evidence uh, if i understand it correctly um arturo so if you if you um introduce more complex lifestyle uh higher levels of challenges to the brain uh in, in a mice population there is some evidence that they uh, they have yes. a higher level of neurogenesis yes but i mean it could also it also happens just making the animals run without putting in a more complex environment yeah uh yes the 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 number of new neurons that are produced and incorporated into the hippocampus increase so that could just that, that could happen uh, through a sort of exercise of the brain but it could also happen through yes. exercise of the body so there is something that relates to what we were talking about earlier that's linked to 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 plasticity yeah. I think it's become very very clear that in the last 50 years and that there is very very important labs at UCSF that study these um uh, you might enjoy talking for example with Michael Striker with whom we have collaborated that during development and I think yeah. this is well known for many people there is periods of enhanced plasticity and neuroscientists call these critical periods of plasticity and it happens not only in humans it happens in animals like birds for example so have a critical period of plasticity when they are much more adept to learn songs from other from other birds so these periods yeah. of plasticity um are seem to be highly linked to the maturation of neurons so much neurons seem to have a, a clock ticking in them and uh, when they hit a certain age they induce this plasticity and this comes from a very specific finding in the lab in collaboration with this other lab where we took those interneurons that we were talking about before and based on other studies that we did years ago we found that we could take these cells and not only transplant them in the context that I told you before to add more cells but put them later in life so put of this take an older brain and put some young interneurons and what happens is that these young interneurons reopen a period of critical plasticity So now moving forward to what we're talking about adult neurogenesis one way to think about adult neurogenesis is to bring in these neurons with a clock that's back that they're young into older circuits just like we do when we transplant interneurons into older brains so that one mean one very important reason to maintain neurogenesis to maintain this period of plasticity um so So I have two questions Arturo so if you if you plot time on x axis and plasticity on the y axis 
plasticity may be proxied by the ability to learn. Um, that that windows that you talked about, um, do we see sort of a step function change? It, it sounds it's not continuous, right? You you hit a you hit a time horizon, and you basically exactly so. Is it? So it closes, that window closes, and then there's other forms of plasticity, but the way you're learning is totally different than the way you were learning at that stage. And I think that can be illustrated very clearly of how easy it is to teach a kid to learn English. I mean, you can tell that I'm a foreigner, that I don't speak English very well because I learn English after my critical period. But for a, but for a kid that learns same, it same. when he's one year or two years old, it's totally natural. And they don't have to suffer through these horrible English English classes. They don't have to learn the grammar and all these rules. They just learn it because their circuits are maturing and those neurons are young and are bringing that information so that everything makes sense. But once those periods closes, yeah, so yeah. one of the amazing findings of these uh, studies that we've done in collaboration is that you can reopen these windows of plasticity with transplantation of these local circuit interneurons. Hmm. You can reopen them. So, so you 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 mentioned introducing new interneurons into the system. Uh, does that imply that there is sort of an age for the interneurons themselves? That, that do, do exactly. the interneurons so, age? What is fascinating is that when you transplant these interneurons and induce a, a second period of plasticity artificially by the transplanted cells, the timing of the period of plasticity that you induce is very much associated to the age of the interneurons. When the, those interneurons hit a certain age, bang, they induce the plasticity, and yeah. then they mature and the plasticity also closes. Yeah, so just like an electronic equipment, just like a computer chip, uh, over time there is some level of you know, it's an electromag electrochemical magnetic process. So there's some level of loss of sensitivity and that shows up as a as sort of an age for the- Well, that's a process that we don't understand at all. And I would that would be something I would love to study in the lab. What is controlling timing in a cell? We know that there's these yeah. circadian clocks that run through the organism and are actually pretty much in every cell. It must be that some of these uh, time controlling mechanisms are operating within neurons and are telling them when to do certain things and when to not. So there's another group that also um, is very interesting critical peers in Harvard, and they have found that actually some of the mutations in these clocks actually can also alter the ability of the animal to go into these critical periods. This is lab of Takao Hench in, in, in Harvard, who yeah. was also a, a student here at UCSF with Michael Stryker. Hmm. Yeah. So, so you mentioned program death very early on in the process. Uh, I wondered if there is some sort of programmed aging uh, built into the interneurons for whatever benefits the brain has. Um, yes, it, I think it's possible. possible. And I think there's people that think about that, um, that are, you know, are very much interested in aging. But since you also uh, mentioned yeah. the period of program cell death, that also seems to be very, very much tied to a specific age of that neuron. When it attains a certain age, if something doesn't happen, these cells on, uh, you know, commit suicide, basically, they, they, they undergo programmed cell death. So the timing events, what's controlling timing in all of these cells that makes them go through these very specific periods. First, they induce them to cell death. There might be other processes going on in terms of connectivity. Then they make them go into critical period plasticity. Then they close critical period plasticity. Some of those clocks might also make, might be making the cell age in very specific with very specific time course, yeah. and that might be linked to to the aging that we all suffer. Yeah, there's some sort of optimization, right? Neurons also consume energy if they are in a position that they're not really contributing, then elimination could be more optimal for the system overall. Yes, but uh, as I was saying before, when you transplant supernumerary cells by adding cells with this um, experimental method of transplantation, you end up with more cells when you would think that if uh, energy use was the limit, uh, you would again 
basically end up with the same number of cells because you have the system would notice that there's extra cells that are needed there that are breathing and, and taking glucose and you just do not need them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, there's a lot to learn. We'll take a quick break, Arturo. When we come back, we'll talk about okay, a couple thank of your you. newer papers. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. Satura, we are back. Um, we were talking about the brain, the intricate design of the brain, the complex dance that uh, neurons and uh, interneurons have to do uh, in the production and distribution phase, early part of its uh, progression. Uh, and, and we talked a little bit about the program cell death. You have a paper, a recent paper, clustered gamma protocaterins regulate cortical interneuron program cell death. Um, you say cortical function critically depends on inhibitory excitatory balance and cortical uh, inhibitory interneurons are born in the ventral forebrain and migrate into the cortex where the numbers are adjusted by programmed cell death. We talked a bit about the ratio, how many of, what percentage of them actually end up dying um, it seems to be the ratio uh, between death and survival is, is more stable than the quantity of neurons. Uh, so, so, so what are you finding here uh, in, in, terms of, um, uh, in terms of that, uh, that phenomenon? Yeah, so th this is very much digging more into what might be the mechanism by which the numbers of cells are regulated. And it's inspired by that earlier work that I told you about where we transplanted different amounts of cells and we saw that the amount of cell death kind of scaled with the numbers of cells that we were transplanting. So we reasoned that there might be something in the surface of these new cells that might be telling each other how many cells they are, there are there. And this was a very simplistic view of what might be happening. Hmm. So one of the postdocs in the lab uh, actually came up with the idea that it might be a group of adhesion molecules. And there is this very, very, very fascinating group of genes called protocoherins that were discovered in Japan that are really cell adhesion molecules that seem to be regulating very important aspects of brain development. Mm. And it had been speculated that it, they might be linked uh, to the formation of synapses. And I think there's some evidence that they are involved in that. But they're also very much involved in the shape that the neurons take and recognizing what part of your processes that you make. Because, you know, these cells have many little wire-like extensions from them. And when these wire-like extensions are there far away from the soma, how do they know that they belong to one cell and not the others is, is, a, is an interesting question. And these pro pro uh, molecules seem to have a role in that. Hmm. So they're called protocoherins. And what is unique about these ones that we're studying is they're clustered. And by, by cluster, I don't mean that the proteins are clustered, the genes are clustered. And what this yeah. means is that the genes are all in one location within the, the uh, DNA of, of the cells. They're all close to each other. And when genes are all clustered like these, there's usually a reason to believe that they are co-regulated, that there's some local level of regulation that happens. And this is not totally understood, but actually there is part of the gene is in one location and then it splice to a, a distant location to make the mature pro, uh, uh, RNA that then is translated into a protein. Mm. So there's three, three of these clusters, the alpha, the beta, and the gamma. And what we have found is that the gamma cluster, the function of the gamma cluster is essential for the correct survival of these neurons. And that's what we report in this paper. And we go on to demonstrate this actually three of the subtypes of this gamma protocoherence that's called the C3, C4, and C5 that are essential for this process. So it's not all of these genes that are required, but only three of them seem to be required. And maybe among those three, there might be only one or two that is required. And that's something that we're currently trying to study. 
Do we have animal models uh, where we can stop this uh, program cell death? Yes. So we make use of that in this system. And there is what are called pro-apoptotic genes. And one of them is called BACs. And yeah. this BACs gene is part of the cascade needed for the cell to commit suicide. So if you remove this gene BACs, it's like the cell does not have the weapon to kill itself and it survives. So when you remove this gene, all of the cells survive. And that actually creates a lot of very interesting questions. You know, what, what's really um, happening to these mice that might have extra neurons that were not able to be eliminated. Yeah. But it's a useful tool in this case because we can, we have, we can show that actually Bax rescues this cell death induced by the removal of the function of the protocoherence, so indicating that in fact these cells are dying through the process of programmed cell death and not just because they have some kind of other deficit, like they cannot breed or they cannot um, uh, transport things across our membrane. So it's something very basically associated to this mechanism of, of cell death. Yeah. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, Arturo. So if the, if the cells don't die, do they have space? Well, yes, because the brain... Yeah, I mean, there's cases where you have problems with that, and actually um, there are mutant mice where you prevent cell death and part of the brain try to like come out of the skull or the skull even grows larger and the brains grow larger because there's so many neurons. And that does not necessarily mean that the animal has better properties when it has more neurons. I mean, the neurons have to be appropriately connected and form in circuits like they normally do during development. But yes, I mean, space can be an issue. But if you think about the brain, many people just think that the neurons are just piled with each other. But the majority of the brain is a space between neurons that is actually occupied by other cell types and by the processes of those neurons. And that's called neuropeel. So if you just look at a section of, of a brain, the cells are separated from each other. And in between, there's all of these other processes. So within the same space, you can pack more neurons, but then you usually have less connections and less processes of those neurons. And so these, these mice models where you don't have programmed cell death, do they end up deficient um, from a mental perspective? Yes, that's a really, really interesting question. And one of the things that we want to do, for example, is that, as I told you before, these interneurons induce a new period of critical plasticity. Yeah. So what happens when you prevent cell death do they form appropriate circuits that they can still induce critical plasticity? And that's one of the experiments that we're working on now. But we can also do the opposite experiments, augment cell death through these protocoherent mutations that I was telling you before. And we have asked also the question, do those, do, does, does that affect the ability of these interneurons to affect cell death? And preliminary results suggest that they cannot induce cell plasticity so that the period of cell death must be somehow linked to the circuits that are required a few weeks later to induce that plasticity. So everything is interlinked. Hmm. And, and everything now, has your to... question can go much farther beyond, and I just don't know the answer. I mean, what happens yeah. when you have a supernumerous number of cells because you have prevented cell death in terms of all kinds of me mental abilities? And I, yeah. uh, my prediction would be that they would be all messed up that having more neurons does not necessarily mean better mental activities. Uh, I mean, that you'd really have to have the right ratios and the right circuits formed during this career when cell deaths are being eliminated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, at, at least intuitively, you, you sort of have junk neurons. Uh, so um, if it has, you know, any, any sort of negative effect in terms of getting to that optimum connectivity, then it should show up as a negative negative issue. Um, but, but then I know that these are our animal models. Do we have some, some sense of um, clinical applicability in any way in humans? For, for what? For the transplantation? Uh, for, uh, and so, so two questions. Do we have diseases that are related to sort of a non-optimum configuration, either by an accelerated program cell death or a deaccelerated program cell death? And if so, do we have some clinical way to uh, intervene? Yes, so that's a really interesting question also. And um, there has been some evidence that in schizophrenia, 
there might be a decrease in certain types of these interneurons. As I told you, these interneurons are diverse. Some of them contact the cell body. Some of them contact the initial segment of the axon. But there's also differences in their physiology. There are some that fire really, really fast. They're an amazing, you know, firing train of, 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 of activity in some of these cells. And those cells express a protein called parvalbumin. And these neurons seem to be deficient or, or decreasing in patients with, in certain parts of the brains of patients with schizophrenia. In autism, it has also been linked to deficits in certain interneuron cell types or in their connectivity. So yes, there is ideas that these interneurons play a role in disease. Now, whether the, you know, the period of cell death is affected and we end up with the wrong number of neurons and that's what the defect is, that's not known yet. Right. Um, and, and if it were, then can you introduce, like you were mentioning before, can you introduce potentially new interneurons into the, into the site and have some effect? Well, yes, this is another area that we're very, very interested in because this is one of the few cell types that you can really transplant. Yeah. So interneurons, uh, you can take from these ganglionic eminences, from these little factories when they're very, very young. You can put them in a postnatal brain or even in an adult brain, and they can migrate and integrate very similarly to the way they do during normal development. So taking advantage of that, there's actually several groups that have reintroduced neurons in animal models. And in collaboration with two other laboratories at UCSF, we stimulated the formation of a, of one, a startup company here in the Bay Area called Neurona Therapeutics that's actually developing um, uh, methods to derive from embryonic stem cells uh, interneurons for transplantation, not for, to treat uh, any of these diseases we were talking about before or deficit in interneurons, but initially to treat epilepsy. Uh, so yes, there is this idea and in the long run, it might be one of the cells that you might be able to introduce into a brain to modify circuits that are not working properly. And that's a long-term goal of, of, you know, of some of the work that we and others are doing. Yeah, yeah. That'll be a fascinating thing. Uh, so, so I want to finish up with uh, one of the paper you have. Uh, we talked a bit about this maintenance of neural stem cell positional identity by mixed lineage leukemia. Um, so this positional identity, it's just a fascinating thing. It, it seems to be very precise very highly controlled uh, process of manufacturing and distributing the specialized neurons. And um, like you mentioned, uh, what they do depends very much on where they are born, right? Yes, this is actually um, working collaboration with another lab who is a long-term collaborator because he was a graduate student in my lab many, many years ago, but he is now a PI himself and doing very, very fascinating work. He's a neurosurgeon also, Dan Lim, who has been very, become very interested in, in uh, um, genomic organization and gene expression. And he's also, you know, a world expert in, ad in adult neurogenesis. And his laboratory found something that's actually quite interesting. The little factory called medial ganglionic eminence that makes the GABAergic cells that go to cortex that we've been talking about remains as a tiny little fraction of this germinal epithelium that exports cells to the olfactory bulb that we were also talking about earlier. And his laboratory found that this region of the brain um, actually stays there and still generates some neurons and, that go to the olfactory bulb and make a very specific subtypes of cells in the olfactory bulb. So one of the question is, and it relates to what you were asking before, is how is this established during development? So yeah. from many, many studies, we know that these areas get determined by little chemical gradients that happen in the embryo that tell each part of the brain what to make in terms of neuronal cell types. So one idea was, well, maybe these gradients are remaining in the adult and are constantly telling the stem cells there what kind of a specialization to acquire. And what yeah. we found in collaboration with this lab is that that's not the case. As the brain grows, this again, like the periods of plasticity, these windows of time when this specialization occurs is passed. So mm -hmm. these cells might inherit somehow from embryonic stages, their specialization. 
they have to memorize it. So what is the cellular memory that keeps this specialization for months, sometimes for years? And so his lab has suggested that it's a process actually of inheritance through the way the heterochromatin, the genes are marked early in development. So there are certain genes putting the chromatin in the, in the genes and that's inherited. And that's what we actually studied in that paper. So somehow if we modified one of the enzymes that modifies methylation within this DNA, that's actually essential to create these marks, these cells seem to forget what specialization they had. And so, so, so they, they are given the task even before they, they migrate? That's right. That happens not even before they migrate. That happens weeks earlier when they were in the embryo and they become specialized. Yeah. So we have another paper that we didn't talk about, but before all of this happened, we showed that that specification happens very early during embryonic development. So happens even midway through embryo brain development, these cells already know what kinds of stem cells are they going to produce in the adult, what type of stem cells they're going to be in the adult. And so, so there's some sort of an overall program running. Um, so even, even at inception, you are, you are basically tagged uh, with that specialization. And, and you, from that point on, you're just, uh, just executing the instructions. That's right. For those cells, I mean, the plasticity comes later on as those cells get into the circuit and then they might create these windows of plasticity. But in terms of the properties of the cells, it's already fixed. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> uh, there is, the, you know, the more you learn about the brain, it, it just seems... It just seems so complex. Uh, it is it is incredible such a thing exists. Yes, so I think there are two main issues that we had discussed today that are very, very important. One, yeah. one is this early specification of locales within the developing brain that determine little factors that make different types of neurons. And the other is timing, that once these cells are produced from these cells that are specialized, that they have a little clock that makes them run a very specific program that you know all unfolds as the cells are maturing. And I think those are two very, very big questions for future research that are going to tell us a lot about brain function. I think the brain is complex, but some of the basic rules can go back to the embryo and they might not be that complex. When we learn the basic mm. properties of the unique components of the brain, I think we can start building the complexity um, and, and understanding the complexity. So I think, yes, the brain is complex. And I thought when I was a kid and was fascinated by the brain and so interested in this field, that by now, uh, you know, that I'm 63, everything would have been cleared out. And it's, we're very, still very far from it. That, that makes it, uh, that keeps it interesting yeah. after, uh, forever. You know, there's another aspect so, about the timing that is very interesting. We were discussing the discussion of whether it continues in adult humans, whether there's production of neurons. But there's other mechanism that's emerging that's very, very interesting that might be able to do the same thing as neuronal production. If you change that clock that's sticking without, within cells and make them mature more slowly, then you might have young cells for longer. And that might have been a mechanism that was using humans to maintain plasticity for longer periods of time. So we and others are finding that there are cells with immature properties when they were not born still in the embryo, but still remaining mature for years and are still immature in adolescence and some of them in adults. And uh, some of the places where you find these neurons are, for example, in the amygdala, that's a, an area that controls emotion and uh, also processes very complex information from different sensory systems. The other one is the entorhinal cortex. And this is the most connected part of cortex in the human brain. It's connected to almost everything. Also probably processing very complex tissue. So the way in which cells mature and the timing of maturation, I think is going to become a super fascinating problem for the future. And that might be another variable that one might be able to modulate both during evolution and also probably for disease and other things. Yeah, it sounds to me, without without knowing a lot about it, sounds sounds to me that is sort of a space and time 
uh, related design, right? So there is a there is sort of a, a grand symphony uh, that's being played out, and every participant is given specific space and time instructions, and it is it is it is executed as given. Uh, but you also mentioned, in some ways, are they coordinating? Uh, they meaning the the interneurons or neurons in general, are they coordinating among them as they as they um, get to the right place at the right time? Yes, and this ha- this probably is very much linked to what we were talking about before of the protocoherence. The cells of the same yeah. age seem to be coordinating with each other for the maturation. Whether they're adjusting their timing, I don't know. Whether they might be influenced each other, I mean, like saying to their neighbor, hey, you are going too fast or you're going too slow and coordinate that way, I don't know. But there's fascinating work from Cornell University in New York suggesting that they form early networks and these networks might also be closely linked to the process of cell death. So yes, they are talking to each other as they are coming into the circuits the cells of the same generation and how all that happens again um, probably holds a lot of very interesting secrets in terms of early brain function. Yeah, that that also opens up potentially an avenue for intervention, right? So even if you cannot really control the the symphony uh, more macro level, there might be localized interventions that let's say you affect only 10% of the, 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 the local neurons, that might be sufficient to change the course, perhaps, right? Because if they are really coordinating among themselves. Yeah, actually, you pick up on, on this concepts very nicely. I mean, that's a very nice way of putting it. And uh, exactly, I mean, the, the, the cells, this might be a very good place for intervention and modifying. If we were to know how the cells are coordinating with each other and how they're modifying their tempo, and perhaps their functionality, what's coming out of this orchestra at any one point or any, or any player in the or, or orchestra, that might be a way where we can modify circuit maturity and uh, maybe correct defects in, in the overall firing patterns. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is really fascinating research, Arturo. So um, in conclusion, when you look forward five years, um, given everything that you're doing with, with your colleagues at UCSF and elsewhere, uh, where do you think we will make sort of the, the biggest leaps in this area in the next five years? You know, if, if we could predict where science is going, <laughs> it would be many times the things are surprises, right? And, and that's where we put most of the interest when things do not make a lot of sense. But I think Neurosciences is living a fascinating era. I mean, I, I see that there's a lot, a lot of information coming out. I mean, obviously, there is a lot of progress in the classification of cells at a much higher genetic level because of the new tools that we have available now. So I think within a few years, we're going to have maps of the cell types in the human brain that are very detailed and not only these rough, you know, um, pictures that we have in terms of some specific markers or genes that they express, but very specifically what genes that they express and and which they express and when. So based on the things that we had discussed today, I myself and I think other labs would be very interested in seeing what genes are changing when with respect to timing. So that's in terms of what's intrinsic to the cell. But I think tools are also becoming very sophisticated for recording from a lot of cells simultaneously and is trying to trying to extract the logics of these circuits. How are they able to do what they do? And here I like to give yeah. an analogy that I think is very, very useful for people to understand because people do not see the brain, they see the manifestation of the brain. When you go out in nature and you see a bird, you can see the beauty of the bird, the colors, the and we admire all of that. But all of that is intricately associated to very specific behavior that that bird puts out. And that's put out by the brain. So all that beauty that you see outside in nature manifested in colors, in plumage, in skin, in appendages, all of that is linked to some kind of behavioral function that is actually inside the brain that we cannot see because it doesn't have those colors, it doesn't have those appendages. So that's the functionality and that's the, the thing that I would love to learn ultimately.
in terms of what the brain really does. So I think within the yeah. next year, we're going to see the first steps towards getting to that. Yeah, so, so one area I thought of, um, Artur, I don't know, you know, people have been fascinated by slowing down aging and it has been sort of slowing down aging of the biological system. Uh, but one of the biggest challenges for humans today is really slowing down the aging of the brain, right? We are, we are living a lot longer than what these systems are really designed for. And aging brain uh, creates a whole sort of sorts of problems uh, for humans. So I wondered, you know, do you see um, progress in that area? Well, again, as I mentioned earlier, it's not my area of research, and there's many, many labs that are interested in this question. I just set it up very well earlier by yeah. linking it to this process of timing. So indicating that yeah. perhaps part of the aging process is, is pre-programmed into, into these timing events that's happening within neurons. Now, there's obviously cases where this is accelerated and it happens faster um, in certain types of neurons. And there's also cases where, where the process is, 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 is triggered by other, other genetic or, or even mechanical uh, forces within the brain. So again, that's an area where you might want to talk with someone that's really working in aging and uh, has put a lot of thought into these. But I agree with you that yeah, that's, yeah. in terms of society, that has become a very, very important target to try to figure out ways to prevent the brain from aging uh, as we make the rest of the body be able to stay more or less functional for longer. Right, yeah. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Arturo. Thanks so much for well, spending time Thank you for the me. good questions and uh, good luck with your podcast. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.